It's quite something to do what we've been doing today. To be engaging in sustained meditation practice and this container of silence and contemplation. And inevitably, of course, at times we might wonder what am I doing here and why aren't I somewhere more comfortable or amongst the people who I care about the most and I'm closest to when yet something in us has moved us and brought us to be here. When I first encountered this kind of a situation as a young man and did my first retreats in, in Asia, um, I remember very much at the beginning the sense of really appreciating what was happening and at the same time not really having a clue what the heck was going on. Some strange mixture of, yes, this is what I was looking for and I don't know what the heck is happening and I can't explain it. And I remember in, in speaking to friends and family about why it was that I was so enthused and engaged and, and it's kind of hard to talk about what it's like to be in a silent retreat with someone who hasn't been there because it's sort of like trying to explain an apple to someone who hasn't eaten one. It, the only thing you can really get that from is actually the experience itself. But what I eventually came to was to describe the process to people or to, to in a way, name it as, as happiness training. This is how it kind of made sense to me and this is how I experienced it. And I think this is a really useful framework to, to hold the sense of what this practice of insight meditation is concerned with, to hold it in that, that light. And so the, the Buddha, when he would speak about his teachings, there was many different ways he, he spoke about it. One of the ways he, he spoke about it was he, he said, I teach one thing and one thing only, suffering and the end of suffering. Well, the word he used was dukkha, which translates also not just as suffering, but sort of unsatisfactoriness or dissatisfaction. He said, you know, I teach suffering, dissatisfaction, and the end of suffering, the end of dissatisfaction. A friend of mine, when I was uh, living and working in America at a retreat center in, in Massachusetts, he, he observed once, he said, well, that's curious, that's two things. It's not one thing. You know, and the Buddha's sort of known for being someone who was quite precise in his use of language. And my, my friend speculated, he said, well, maybe the Buddha just started off teaching one thing. I teach suffering, I teach dissatisfaction. But he found that people weren't that interested. Well, they didn't come along to hear him have to talk about it that much. So actually, the, the sort of the teaching evolved, oh, suffering and the end of suffering. Dissatisfaction and the end of dissatisfaction. And I think when we hear that, there's something a little more sort of compelling in it. Because, of course, we're interested in our life. We care about the condition of our heart and our mind and happiness concerns us it seems and the absence of happiness likewise the absence of fulfillment of satisfaction of of being at ease with the way our life is and where it's going 
And so when we talk about meditation, or when I speak of meditation, insight meditation as happiness training, it's really a process that encompasses our own journey of exploring and discovering for ourselves what it is that brings true happiness, true fulfillment, genuine sense of transformation of that in life which we find unsatisfying or that we find ourselves not not so much transformation of that which is unsatisfying but transformation of the experience of being bound in that sense of not being satisfied or of being unfulfilled in some way and the Buddha spoke of this in terms of the, the foundations for happiness and for, for well-being, which is another word we could use to talk about what that deeper sense of happiness, not just talk about sort of having a sort of a very sort of chirpy day sort of happiness, which is good enough, you know, it's not that I'm knocking that, but that there's something deeper that I think we, we recognize and that we aspire to, that we're drawn towards. And... Um, the Buddha spoke of it in three sort of broad territories, the, the, the realm of, of goodness, the realm of presence, and the realm of wisdom. And these, he pointed out, are the foundations for deep and genuine well-being and happiness for a human being like ourselves. As I said, we're deeply interested in the condition of our heart and our mind, the degree of or absence of happiness is important to us all, and yet we don't necessarily get taught how it comes about. It's not actually what our education system or our sort of process of socialization within our culture is actually directed towards. We much more learn about how to kind of get by in terms of becoming an effective and productive member of a social sort of organism that's concerned to a large extent with producing and consuming. And this doesn't really do it for us. So perhaps we'd be interested to, to hear, to reflect on and to, in the light of our experience and process here on retreat to consider these possibilities or these areas of uh, attention and, and engagement which can serve the deepening and the discovery of, of, a, of a genuine well-being and happiness in life that is possible for all of us. So that what, what I'm characterizing with the, the word goodness the, the Buddha spoke of in two particular areas one is the area of, of generosity and of sharing and the other is to do with the, the impact of our actions that do or do not cause harm to others so it's this capacity we have as human beings to contribute to the well-being of others that I would encompass within the sense of generosity. It's not just giving things, but a sense of giving of what we care and what we, we care about, what we value. And generosity has a quality of uplifting the heart. It's something very remarkable and beautiful and yet simple too. 
that we all know and we're entering into the season of sort of the the great happy celebration i put that slightly in quote marks um of christmas where the the kind of the underlying principle of it is there's something really lovely about giving of course we easily get a little bit confused by into thinking there's really something lovely about getting lots of things given to us which is nice it's true although it has its complications um but the sense of something also connected with the sacred in terms of giving, in terms of giving of gifts, of sharing, of offering. It connects us with others, as I said. And equally the, the principle of non-harming that we spoke about at the beginning of the retreat, that way of recognizing that our actions have an impact not just on others, but actually on our inner condition and state. If we reflect on some of the places that we may, I don't know what might be have been going on in your practice, pro- probably for most of us at time we weren't, there were moments where we weren't sort of continuously attentive to the breathing and other things emerged into conscious. Some of the things that some of you may well have noticed will be things to do with those times where someone has done something that was harmful to ourself, or we have done something that may have been harmful to another, and maybe they let us know about that in some way, or we realized it at some point. And it has an impact in our heart, in our mind, in our life. The impact of action is something that it's actually important for us to contemplate and to reflect upon. And the process of meditation can't be separated from also the way we live and act in our lives. So to act in ways that express generosity, which are really giving in a way that supports the well-being of others, whether through gift, but equally through kindness. Any form of kindness is an expression of generosity, a sense of giving to others what they wish for. Or giving to ourselves what we also wish for. Kindness has that quality to it. And equally, so far as we restrain from causing harm to others, so far as we're able to, and of course this is not something we can do perfectly, but that we can commit ourselves to the intention of, which is how the precepts work, to doing the best we can with that, we see that actually we become agitated internally by behaviors or actions that cause harm it's the nature of it it's simply one of the laws of how our experience works it might not always be immediately obvious we might think well but if i get away with it you know i could get an advantage here and yet it has a kind of constructive and tightening effect inside whenever we act in ways that disregard our impact on others we can only do so by separating ourselves off from them by kind of disconnecting the caring quality of our heart saying I'm not allowing it to go there to include this person or this situation that I'm causing some harm to and that actually hurts us it actually harms us because it constricts the space of our heart And so when we act, as we sometimes do, all of us, I do, I imagine you also, not necessarily intentionally, but when we act in some form of selfishness, out of some 
sense of neediness or, or greed or out of anger and irritation and we're not tuned in to the impact on another. If we contemplate what's happened in that, if we, if we look inside, and I've done this as a practice and it's a, it's a regular and important practice for me to, to come back to, we see, oh, actually, it causes suffering to me. I actually experience this as painful to have lived or to have acted in this way. This isn't about judging or blaming or some kind of moral position we take about ourselves or others, but it's something we can experience, we can know. And so, so taking the precepts is not just to protect others or holding that orientation, it's something that also protects our own inner well-being. And so, this is something we start to notice because the impact of how we've acted in our life, all of our life, is part of what we're sitting with. It's part of what we're encountering. Significant elements of what's uncomfortable arise out of the way we are beginning to encounter the internalized, the sort of somatized way we've kind of, in a way, held in our body patterns of reactivity that are painful to encounter, constrictive and limiting to inhabit. And so one of the implications of this, and it's, it's important, it's not insignificant, is that the deeper happiness that we seek, the deeper well-being, the deeper peace, the deeper freedom that we're drawn to quite naturally as human beings. It's actually dependent on how we live, on our intentional actions. And so if we recognize this, if we see that where we act out of selfishness or greed, out of aggression, aversion or hatred, where we act out of a, a non-caringness about others or ourselves, it causes harm and suffering. We see that much of this takes place unconsciously. If we reflect on it, if we notice, we see most of it happens habitually. We don't really want to, and yet it happens in so many ways, and so many times, what it says to us is we actually need to be conscious, we need to be mindful, we need to be present in order to choose which of the available responses we really want to enact here. If we're unconscious, if we're not present, then our, our habits rule. Reactivity dominates. And we see how this plays out in the world, how this plays out in our own life. It's not comfortable viewing sometimes. Much as we might be drawn to and interested to, to find quiet and peace and silence and solitude, what we encounter in it is, of course, all the things that we might have hoped to escape but we perhaps encounter them in a different way, in a way where they may be seen more clearly, where, in a way we might understand them more deeply. 
So it's useful, therefore, to understand that part of what we're doing here is actually allowing ourselves to be impacted by our life. It's not that we're somehow here to judge or to condemn where we might be caught in reactivity, but to see it compassionately, to understand what's going on. So much of unconsciousness that we live in does not serve us. So much of what happens in there. And so that's really the basis for making the intention, forming the commitment and the dedication to say, I want to try and be present. I want to cultivate this capacity to be mindful, to be awake, to see what's actually going on. To be aware of it. The, the peace, when we, when we come thinking, I, 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 I want to find calm or peace or ease, which is natural and appropriate and nothing wrong with that. To understand the journey for that discovery is not through somehow just getting away from all that is unpeaceful or painful or difficult, but actually looking and seeing what is it we're doing in and with our experience that might be contributing to reinforcing or, in fact, giving rise to the very distress or discomfort or unease that we seek to free ourselves from. And it's a learning process. We all learn through a process that's kind of uncomfortable. And it's, I think, rather beautifully described in a story of a, um, a Zen student who has an opportunity to go and visit the great master of, of the tradition in which the student has been a, a practitioner for some years. And the student, he, he's very excited about going to see the master. Although he's also a little bit scared because the master is known to be quite fierce and um, formidable. And so he go al goes along and um, takes a few moments to bow. It's the traditional way to express respect and, and to honor the teacher. And... Uh, and she is sitting there, the Zen master, and she's sitting like a mountain. She is not smiling. And he knows he just has a few minutes to meet this very precious interview. And he says, Master, Master, can you tell me what's the most important thing to cultivate? The master looks at him. She says, hmm. Good judgment. Wise discernment. And he goes, oh, thank you. Yes, yes, of course, of course. He says, Master, how do you cultivate good judgment and wise discernment? She looks at him. Hmm. Experience. He says, oh, of course, of course, of course. That's how you get yeah. How do you get experience? Hmm. Bad judgment. Lack of discernment. There is no other way. So far as we don't understand what serves our deeper well-being, we will act in ways that do not. Only by stopping 
and looking to see what's happening, becoming aware of and conscious of it, can we start to recognize what truly serves and what does not. And so in this process we are training in the capacity to see what's happening in order to learn from it, in order to understand from it what truly serves. And this process of training, I think, is a little mysterious because what we discover as we begin to engage with our heart and our mind is we can't quite get it to do exactly what we told it to. And this is something that we frequently find ourselves reflecting on and commenting on in the small group meetings as we were, um, certainly in some of the conversations I had this afternoon. That sense of it just doesn't quite happen that way. So... I think a really good way to understand the process is that, that we have to be willing to be patient, to give it time and to see what will actually serve here. So, this training process is very much like training a puppy. Learning to be present, learning to be awake. It's very much like training a puppy to heal. And if you've ever been involved with training a young dog, and of course a puppy, a young dog, needs to learn certain things to live in our culture and our world. It needs to be trained or else it won't be able to be safe and well. And of course, if you put a puppy down beside your foot and say, heal, what happens? Does a puppy stay there? Unlikely. Puppy runs off. And so you say, puppy, you know, get the pu- puppy, put it back here. I told you, stay here, heal. It runs off. It goes off. And we might see this playing out so many times. You know, we bring it here. Puppy runs off. You know, wants to chase a butterfly. Wants to smell a flower. Wants to water the tree. Whatever it does. If every time we see it run away, we think, Oh no, it's a hopeless dog. Bad dog. You're no good. You're in big trouble. Pretty soon the puppy's going to think, you know, that that guy's pretty angry. I'm getting out of here as soon as I can. And the puppy, the mind, moves away because the environment it's being asked to inhabit isn't actually particularly kindly or friendly. If every time the mind goes somewhere else, if every time the puppy runs, we go, oh, look, that's that's what you've done? Oh, my gosh, okay, come back over here. Oh, you're over there now. Wow. You've been gone for a while. Come back over here. After a while, the puppy gets the sense that actually this is a friendly sort of a person and maybe it's okay to hang out with them. If we create an environment of kindness and care in our holding of this process, it starts to become a place to which we naturally incline to abide in. That very environment of pressure, of demand, of judgment, of rejection, of reactivity to the mental activity is actually what fuels its intensity, its repetitiveness, its compulsiveness. And so the first thing we're learning to do is to actually begin to release the urge to judge, to reject, to blame the process, the experience, and of course, therefore, ourself for what's going on. Because we see it's just happening. 
we're not in charge of it much more than we are in charge of a puppy. We can keep bringing it back and it'll keep running away. But over time, that process starts to change. And we start to see how the mind is drawn to this and to that. We start to recognize it and begin to actually spot what's happening more clearly, more quickly, and more easily able to say then, oh, just come back, come back here. There's a, there's a way in which the, the heart and the mind start to come into focus slowly, just by coming back again and again. It's as if we had a light source that we wanted to see something with, but we were shaking it around all the time, rather than just pointing it in one place. We wouldn't see much, but we learned to hold it a bit more steadily, just through coming back. A bit like a torch that doesn't have a lens behind it, and the light is all scattered. Then it has a lens, and suddenly it focuses. It's gathered. This process of, of coming back again and again into our experience, it has this way in which it slowly gathers or it pulls. The, sort of like gathering water in our open hands. We can't grab it. We can't squeeze it and make it happen in a hurry. But we kind of allow it to gather. And we sometimes talk in this context of, you know, the, the language is often used like concentrated or trying to get concentrated or not being able to concentrate. And I don't think it's the most helpful language, really. We often have an association of sort of forcing or willpower with that and we're being yelled at at school, you know, concentrate, you, so-and-so, you know, in a not particularly friendly way. When actually we're more interested in something else than what's, being, what's going on here. So it's hard. Rather than thinking of concentration, it's more like gathering or collecting. That the sense of this quality of presence deepens out of the unifying or the gathering together, the slowly gathering together of the, in a way, the vital living energy of our consciousness, of this remarkable capacity to simply know, to see, to know what's happening in the moment, in each experience. And to see how this sort of the, the pull and push that we experience with regard to what's going on. It's often not so much that we're struggling with the experiences that happen themselves, but with the conclusion that we form based upon them. That, you know, we somehow imagine that whatever's arising here somehow defines me. When we feel some sadness, we easily start to imagine that somehow I am a sad person. Rather than, oh, just now, I'm experiencing sadness. Or if it feels all a bit boring sitting around doing nothing, we somehow start to feel like that means that somehow I'm boring. It's like we somehow feel like I'm not getting it right. I'm not doing it. It's not working. It and the sense of it doesn't feel okay translates into somehow I'm not okay or I'm not doing it okay and therefore I'm not okay. There's so often an incredible harshness we can have with ourselves in this regard, in this process. And just to be able to step back and acknowledge what happens here, to see, oh look, this is the way it seems to happen. We both, I think, well, we often have 
both a sense of interest in wanting to be really present and some ambivalence about it. Some say, mm, I'm not really sure because it might not be comfortable. It might not be entertaining. It might just not look good. You know, wandering back and forth on the lawn, being present. It's not sort of going to do that much for our social media, is it? Posting these really exciting pictures of just doing nothing. It just wouldn't go down very well. And the, the modern sort of social sort of, this is my great life sort of world. And so part of why it's hard for us to let things be simple, to really just steady and orient towards this, this sense of just being present, just being conscious and mindful and awake, is because it, the, the activities, the things that are usually going on in our life, we're constantly using them to tell ourselves a story of who I am. And it's often a story predicated on somehow needing to become a better version of me than I am. And it's a, it's a process and an undertaking that doesn't ever come to an end. It goes on and on and on. And we, we notice this. This being kind of caught in, in these patterns of sometimes judgment. Or, or striving to become something better or different, feeling at the the react at the mercy of our reactivity, of where we kind of demand, I want it to be like this, or I should be this way, or I don't want it to be like that, or I should not be this way. And how different it is just to see. This is the experience that's happening. How can I meet it? How can I turn towards this experience? There's a way in which so much of what takes place is driven by the sense of of wanting things to be a certain way, not wanting them to be a certain way. And it's kind of curious and I think interesting just to sometimes take a step back and watch how that goes on inside us. You know? Sometimes we're sitting and we're just, oh, we're just wishing the sitting would end. Oh, I just wish the sitting would come to an end. You know? Surely that, surely the teacher's fallen asleep. We've been here for hours. And oh, they're just doing this to make us suffer. It's really, you know. And the bell rings. And suddenly it feels, oh, great, I feel really well. It's very interesting, you know, that moment when the bell rings. It's really not any different than the moment just before. But somehow it feels so much better. It's great because somehow the hope and the fantasy of something different is about to come true. It's going to be so much better when I don't have to be sitting. Phew. So then we get up and we're walking. We're walking. We go back and forward and back and forward. Then we try for a difference to go forward and back, and forward and back. And at some point we start to think, I can't wait for the next sitting. It's going to be so good. I haven't completely forgotten that we were just desperate to get out of it. It starts to become, well, anything to get me out of this walking meditation. You know? And it just keeps on going like that. 
we get back to the sitting and then we're thinking about lunch. Lunch comes along, it's wonderful, yum, I'm really enjoying it, but I could do with a cup of tea. I've got a plate full of food in front of me, I'm looking forward to it all morning. When, when, when am I going to get a cup of tea? It's like we keep projecting into the sense that the next thing's going to do it for me. And it doesn't. Or the other side of it is sort of that sense of, you know, we're, we're there and we're feeling kind of restless. And it's kind of, oh, I wish I could be more calm, you know. It's just like, body's a bit uncomfortable, mind's a bit agitated. So. And, and then it's sort of like, we start to feel drowsy and all the restlessness is gone. But now we're sleepy, we're drowsy and it's sort of like, we're not celebrating the absence of restlessness. It's like, oh, oh no. Now, now it's this. Now it's this. Or, or, you know, we have some physical pain and it's hard to be with pain. It's not easy for us to, to meet pain in, in this process, in this journey. And uh, sometimes, as much as we really would like to avoid it, there's something important in this encounter with what's uncomfortable for us. There's a way in which allowing ourselves to feel what is not easy, it begins to soften and tenderize and open us up in all the ways that we've desensitized or hardened or become numb to the feeling of our life, to the experience of our life. And and so, of course, at a certain level, it's understandable that we don't want to experience what's painful. But just seeing if I can, if I can bring some some kindness to this, some softness to this, some allowance to this, to stay steady so far as we're able and also have permission to change if we need to change the posture that we can. There's always something going on that can be a problem. There's always something if the mind is oriented towards looking for what's not okay, it will always find something. So, so turning towards, becoming aware of that tendency, that pattern, and how the reaction to our experience takes us away from where we are, into the thinking about, what can I do about it? How can I figure out enough about the experience? How thinking it usually goes into the past trying to figure out how the experience happened. If it's an experience we're finding difficult, trying to figure out how it happened so I can fix it, stop it, and prevent it happening again. Or if it's an experience we're enjoying or appreciating, trying to figure out how it came to be so that I can repeat it, so I can continue it, so I can extend it. And we kind of lose contact with just the sense of being here. We get drawn to that world of past and future, engaged in a process of somehow trying to make it be, this life and my experience, the way I want it to be. And we can't do that in the way that we imagine we should be able to, or that we're told we will be able to. This 
is the realm of wisdom that we initially encounter in meditation practice. The, the, the process of cultivating a stability, a steadiness, a gatheredness of mind brings us into contact with the dynamic of our mind that does not easily come to rest in peace or in ease or in well-being or in happiness because of the constant looking for and searching for the way to make it different than it is in the hope and the belief and the fantasy in the desperate longing or wishing for the fact that that would somehow bring us to the place we wish to be And yet that very dissatisfaction that we seek to avoid, that unease or lack of fulfillment, is being fueled and reinforced by the process of somehow trying to get away from it or fix it in the way we tend to try to do. And so the invitation is to explore something different that feels perhaps like it at first sort of contemplation is not that necessarily not that likely to work from our ordinary way of thinking about it if I just leave it alone doesn't that mean I'm going to be stuck here where I am forever of course what we might notice as we pay attention to our experience is that experience keeps changing you know, you've probably all had moments today where you were absolutely desperate to get the heck out of here. Or at least come to the end of whatever was going on. And at the same time, you've probably all of you had moments where you're actually quite enjoying it. Or at least thinking, well, it's not too bad. You know, could maybe get used to this. And a whole range of other experiences too. Experience keeps changing. If we endeavor to control it or to get it to fit into a particular framework that we imagine is the way we will be happy for it to be, it won't stay that way that long. That's not the nature of experience. And so far as we make our happiness dependent upon a particular configuration of what's happening, it's unlikely to really work out well for us. I mean, of course you might, and you're free to say, well, no, no, I'm, I, think, I think I could probably make that work, you know, and that's fine, you know. There's sometimes a question to be asked if I've been working on that for a few years or decades, or in fact several decades, and it hasn't worked out yet. You know, does that mean I'm just not doing it very well, and once I figure out how to do it a bit better, then it's going to work? There's a great story of Mullah Nasruddin, a Sufi teaching figure who's both a wise man and a fool. And uh, on one occasion, Nasruddin is uh, sitting in the corner of the, the village market on uh, the village square on market day with a large pile of red hot chilies in front of him. He's picking them up and eating them one at a time. And his friends come up and say, Mullah, Mullah, which is a sort of the honorific term for for um, sort of a holy man says Mullah what are you doing 
picks up another chili and bites into it. His eyes are streaming. His, his, his face is bright red. And it's obviously distressing him as he eats it. And he, he says, I'm eating these chilies. And they say, Mullah, Mullah, we can see that you're eating these chilies. Why are you eating these chilies? Nasruddin smiles. He says to them, I keep hoping to find a sweet one. And it's like, there's this part of us that we kind of know that if we keep doing the same thing, expecting to get a different result, it's not going to work. In fact, that's sometimes been described as the definition of insanity. Keeping doing the same thing and expecting to get a different result. So we actually have to try something different, even if we don't know what the result will be. And the invitation here is to explore what it's like to turn towards your experience. To learn the art of connecting with the experience that's here. Not being fooled by the, the habitual reactivities that tell us what we think should or should not be happening. Because if this experience is happening that there are inevitably good reasons why it should be. That doesn't mean it's the only possibility, but for now it's what's here. And if we can use this experience that's here, whatever it is, whether it's pleasant and comfortable, whether it's unpleasant or unwished for, if we can use this as the basis for turning towards, for connecting with this very connection itself, the quality of presence that it expresses and the openness that it engenders, this actually starts to point to us or show to us something qualitative that is of a different order than what we're normally looking for or what we think is most meaningful when something arises that we like that we enjoy we very easily imagine it's the thing that's making me feel really good that yummy bit of food or that i don't know nice thing that i've just been given What's actually going on is that when we like something, we connect with it. And the connection, the presence, the willingness to actually meet and be fully there is something deeply sweet and wholesome in our being. When we encounter something that's difficult, something that's painful, something that's challenging, the habitual reaction is to push away, to disconnect. And if we don't see that, we imagine it's the painfulness of the thing that's really, or the unpleasantness of the thing, that's really what causes the deeper distress. But in fact, it's the disconnectedness, it's the loss of contact with our life that comes from pulling away. So far as we're unconscious, so far as we're just enacting habitual, historical, reactive patterns, then these, this, this quality of connection can't be seen separate from 
the things to which we connect or from which we disconnect. As we practice, as we start to notice the possibility of turning towards that which isn't easy, and the capacity to also simply allow the experience which we find maybe is lovely or enjoyable without trying to take hold of it, without trying to keep it or maintain it or continue it in some ways, but just make contact with it. We see this capacity for connecting is not ultimately dependent upon what is taking place. Only when we're driven by our reactivity is that the case. When we are in a place of of mindful presence, we have the choice to turn towards our experience. We don't actually need to get rid of that which is difficult, but we need to learn what it means to open to it. This is not easy. I'm not suggesting this is something we can just do in a sort of a, a very brief moment of, oh, oh, that makes sense. Yeah, I'll do it like that. Good. We finished now. Let's go. Let's go home. It's quite a process to encounter the momentum of that. I'm not going to call it hardwired because it's actually not that, although it's a bit like that. It's deeply, deeply, deeply entrenched patternings that come out of our basic survival orientations, that come out of our um, evolutionary biology that's oriented towards pleasure, pleasure and pain, so far as pleasure is associated with survival and well-being and pain is associated with danger and death. And at a certain level, of course, that's true. At a survival level, it's good to be able to recognize where that's operating. But that's not actually what the deeper happiness turns upon. And so when we're not in the process of needing to survive, we become interested, perhaps more, what brings the depth of fulfillment, of connection, of happiness that we long for. To be present and open in the midst of all experience. To see what this requires of us, which is no small thing. To allow ourselves to be touched by life unconditionally, open to, engaged with what is here. We can begin to discover and know for ourselves a deeper abiding happiness that isn't dependent upon the particulars of the experience that's happening. But there's much more to do with the, the condition of the heart and mind that is starting to discover its freedom from those conditioning forces of reactivity. That's beginning to know and experience directly the the nature of what it is to be awake and to be alive. To simply be here in our life, in this condition that we are. This quality of 
presence that is founded on orienting our activity, our action in terms of goodness, in terms of ethicality and generosity, that allows a deep settling of the heart and mind to be able to meet our life, to be able to embrace our life. And in this something is revealed that's kind of mysterious and yet at the same time remarkably ordinary. Only hard to see because it's kind of like the water we're swimming in. As you know, the story of the fish who's looking for the ocean. And another fish says, hey, this is the ocean. And the first fish says, nah, it's just water. So too, so long as we're looking for something that's not what's here, trying to get to some place other than where we are, or to become someone other than what we are, we can't quite see, we can't quite receive what's already here, which is the real and the true and the deeply meaningful immediacy of our life. And this is something that the path of, of insight meditation is an invitation to awaken to, to discover for ourselves. to see and to know is something shared amongst all of us, all of life. And this wisdom is not something far from us. but that requires a, a willingness to give ourselves unconditionally to the experience of our life. And see what we might discover therein. So it's not a case of how long we can meditate or how long before we have to change our posture as we might sometimes wonder. It's much more about the wholeheartedness with which we engage in the whole process. As uh, the great uh, Thai uh, meditation master Ajahn Chah who lived in the 20th century he, uh, who was once asked about this and he said, you know, People ask me how long they should sit and they think that the longer you can sit, the wiser you must be. But I've seen chickens sitting on their eggs for days and they don't seem any wiser. And he went on to say, each person has their own natural pace. Some of you will 
die at age 50, some at age 65, and some at age 90. So too your practices will not be identical. Don't think or worry about this. Try to be mindful and let things take their natural course. Then your mind will become still in any surroundings, like a clear forest pool. All kinds of wonderful rare animals will come to drink at the pool. And you will see clearly the nature of all things. You will see many strange and wonderful things come and go. But you will be still. This is the happiness of the Buddha. So let's sit quietly for a few moments together. So may we all, in our practice here together, and in our lives, may we deepen in, in goodness, in presence, and in wisdom for our own welfare, for the welfare of all beings and the well-being of all that lives. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.